Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Eldar Maximov, Assistant Professor of Accountancy at Arizona State University, and Matthew Ege, Assistant Professor of Accounting at Texas A&M University. We'll be discussing their paper, The Revival of Large Consulting Practices at the Big Four and Audit Quality, which they co-authored with Dane Donaldson of the University of Iowa and Andy Imdick of the University of Notre Dame. I'll add a link to the paper in the show notes for today's episode. Eldar, Matt, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Andrew. So an audit firm, uh, it's implicit in the name of an audit firm, does audit work. It reviews the financial statements, the books and records of uh, companies or other preparers of financial statements and ensures that they are uh, done in accordance with a set of accounting standards. I wondered if maybe you could give us a little bit of background on the practice of audit firms and providing services that are not audit services that are perhaps adjacent or related in some way, but are not audit services themselves. And maybe if you could talk about some of the potential problems with that practice, uh, some of the historical controversy around that practice, and the regulatory response that we've seen to audit firms providing non-audit services. Sure. This is Eldar. I will start this off, and then Matt will come in and correct any errors I have made, which is the usual practice for us working together. So if you think about auditors and audit firms, these are very smart people. They have great skill sets, leadership ability, and so forth, and they have a lot to offer. And so it's hard to box them in into only providing audit services. I, I heard one of the uh, partners a while ago say something like, I'm, I'm in public accounting, not because I love accounting. I'm in public accounting because I have the, a public heart. They want to provide services to their clients. When they see clients have them issues, they want to help them out. And so that's, on the one hand, what drives them providing, wanting to provide a wide range of services that are not just limited to auditing. On the other hand, of course, audit firms are businesses. What I keep telling my students, they don't do this out of the goodness of their heart. They, they need to make money to, to, be, to have longevity. And so more money is always better than less. And so somewhere in between, there is this thing that you want to be the biggest, you want to have the bragging rights that you're the one-stop shop, that you have all these services that you can provide, that you have the largest revenues, that you're industry leader in this or that. And so there's also that. And so there, it's, it's a number of factors that drives this, but that, that pretty much captures the, the range. Matt, you want to add anything to that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I would also just say that audits are mandatory. And so the audit, or at least in the U.S., and so the auditors, when they're in and, and, and providing their audit services, a lot of times uh, it's natural for uh, the auditor to identify other issues or for the client to come to the auditor and say, hey, we, we'd like to talk about this or that or get your opinion on this. It's just It's just natural because the auditor is already in there. And so sometimes it makes a lot of sense to try to engage the auditor to do other work. They're already knowledgeable about the business. Uh, there may be some cost efficiencies to do that. Uh, and so I think a lot of times these non-audit services or services that are outside of traditional auditing uh, just kind of happen organically uh, through those processes. Yes. So this is back to Eldar. 
And, and so essentially to, to continue the story, you know, there's clearly the conflict of interest that potentially arises. If you think of auditors as your inspectors who are supposed to identify problems, you don't want your house inspector to also tell you, you know, to be able to identify the work that needs to be done to the house, then perform all that work, and then inspect their own work, right? So that's where, you know, it starts to get, I'm not sure how comfortable I am with the same person doing all of these things. And so that's a conflict of interest. And having said all this, so we just established that auditors are not evil people that they're doing all these services. They really are professionals who want to help their clients. But then there are all these conflict of interest that are human, that are natural, that they have to deal with. And, and some research shows that providing certain non-audit services actually helps audits. For example, prior research shows that providing tax services, to Matt's point, you know, when you're there already, you have all this knowledge you're providing tax services, and then you're doing audits, audit quality actually is higher. So at least there's some evidence showing that. And historically, what happened is the, the percentage of non-audit services as percentage of revenues that auditors provide has vacillated greatly. Uh, we're talking something like in the teens of percentages in the early 80s to over 50% in the late 90s. And the profession regulated itself. They created the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants that essentially provided all the standards requiring independence of auditors from their audit clients. And so there were some boundaries around, hey, you still have to be independent to provide these services, as hard as it was, given that they were providing all these consulting services to their audit clients. But then something didn't work. As I said, the Percentage of consulting services was around 50% across the largest firms in the late 90s. And so as a result of that, potentially as a result of that, in the early 2000s, this Enron and Arthur Anderson saga broke out. There were many other scandals, but many commentators later said that perhaps the shift in culture the, from focusing on audit quality, from professionalism to commercialism. And the commentators and academics have been observing that, that there's something that happens, that there's a big difference in mindset between auditing and consulting. And when, when a partner has to deal with not just auditing, but also all of a sudden there's consulting added to the mix, whether it's because the office has grown consulting practice or whether it is because the partner has the ability to sell consulting, consulting services to even non-audit clients. There's something that happens to the mindset that goes to commercialism away from audit quality potentially. And so that badly misfired. The Congress stepped in, created Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002 that, among other requirements, prohibited auditors of public companies from providing most consulting services to their public company clients. And so from then on, the, the firms decided that they need to sell their consulting practices now because they, they can't do everything they want. And the three of them, PwC, ENY, KPMG, they ended up selling their consulting practices. Arthur Anderson is already out of the picture, but they were the very first to, to start selling their consulting practice for different reasons. And so now there is one firm that's left is Deloitte. They didn't manage to sell their practice before market conditions deteriorated. And now they had to make a decision what to do. And they decided, hey, we're just going to provide consulting services to companies we don't audit. 
And they had to deal with a lot of issues around independence, and they managed to work those out. Now, other audit firms are watching this, and they're saying, hey, it turns out we can do this. So they started growing their consulting practices again from scratch. So Deloitte had a little bit of a, you know, was a, was a little bit of a head. How do you grow it super fast? You buy other consulting practices. And so that essentially brings us to where we are now and to our paper in that the big four are in a race, as it seems, to grow their consulting practices by acquisition. So this was a long answer to your question, Andrew. I hope that's what you were hoping for. So this brings us to your paper. And I wondered, what are some of the ways that an audit firm acquiring consulting practices that might provide audit-related services or might provide services that are not audit-related, how can that affect the audit quality at the firms that the auditors are responsible for, their clients? And beyond some of the theoretical possibilities of those effects, what does the prior literature have to say about that? Yeah, so this is Matt. Eldar alluded to this a little bit before, but I'll try to quickly summarize and and move on. So before we talk about exactly what would happen uh, in an acquisition, I think it's good to just think about non-audit services themselves. So traditionally, there's kind of two angles to think about when we're thinking about how non-audit services could affect audit quality. One is, is this idea that it could impair independence. So essentially, I mean, I think the easiest example of this is if you think about a client or an auditor who sells a big non-audit services job to a client, well, they may become worried about that part of the work, more worried about that than the audit itself. And if that happens, then perhaps the auditor is willing to compromise a little bit on audit quality in order to keep that large consulting or non-audit service type job. Related to that, it's also possible that in performing that non-audit service job or that consulting job, their mindset shifts kind of more towards like an advisor type mindset or a consulting type mindset. Or a lot of people would talk about this in the words, or they'd use the words, an advocate of the client. And when they do that, they become less able to maintain kind of the objective mindset or that independent mindset that is required of auditors. So that's uh, kind of the negative side of it. But the more positive side of it would say, look, if the auditor can come in and do other work, then they know a whole lot more about the client. And so if they know a lot more about that client, then there can be this knowledge spillover. In other words, they can do a better job of auditing because they're getting essentially paid to do all this extra work that gives them more knowledge about the client. And so the literature uh, historically has not examined the acquisition angle that, that we've looked at. And so I'll get to that in a minute. But the literature that it has examined non-audit services specifically provided to audit clients traditionally has not found evidence that independence is impaired. In other words, there's not really much evidence at all that restatement rates would be higher, for example, when non-audit services are higher. However, there's a little bit of evidence that perception of independence is a problem. So in other words, if you look at stock market reactions, those are a little lower for clients when the clients are paying a lot of non-audit services. Uh, So there is perhaps a perception problem, but not necessarily, there's not very much evidence that there's actually true independence impairment. Now, with this literature, there was also concerns, too, that these non-audit services could affect the overall firm culture. But I haven't seen many of those arguments being made in the prior literature that specifically examine non-audit services being provided to audit clients. Um, However, these, of course, are very relevant to our current environment. In other words, 
if you think about non-audit services being provided to non-audit clients, then, well, how could that actually affect the audit? Well, one potential way is the shift in culture, the shift in mindset. And then, of course, we still have the positive angle could still be that there is some type of knowledge spillover, but it's a little different. It's not that all of a sudden you do this non-audit work and you know more about your client. It's more about if I'm providing a lot of non-audit services in an area that's relevant to the audit, well, then that could help me do better audits. So as a simple example, if you do a lot of work in some type of technology, like an enterprise resource managing system or some type of technology that is relevant to the audit, data analytics, things like that. If you do a lot of work in that area, and that can, of, of course, help you do better audits because audits use those similar types of technologies or they audit those types of technologies. And so specifically, as it relates to uh, you know, our, our setting, when we're thinking about the acquisition of these consulting firms, well, we're thinking about um, if they purchase a consulting firm, they meaning like the big four, if they're purchasing or acquiring a consulting firm that relates to the audit, well, then perhaps there could be some knowledge that's gained uh, through that acquisition and through performing those additional services that could ultimately benefit the audit. Conversely, if they purchase an acquisition that is not related to the audit, well, we don't see that there's much ability for it to positively affect the audit or audit quality through knowledge. So perhaps that's a situation where the culture issue kind of dominates and there's actually more of a negative effect because the big four or the, the firm is now focusing more on uh, kind of these non-audit services and shifting the culture a little bit. Elbar, do you want to add anything to that? Yes. One thing I wanted to add to what Matt just beautifully described is that there is a tension in all of this because regardless of what type of consultant practice this is, whether it's related to audit and can provide all these expertise pullovers or not, there is this potential culture effect, right? They're, they're still consultants, whether they're audit related or not. And that's just a different mindset. And so the, the question is, does this expertise, potential expertise spillover, is it greater than the negative potential effects of the culture spillover, if you will? So does that expertise make up and provide actually positive effects on audit quality? That is what we wanted to examine. So I think that sets up the background of this M&A process of consulting services uh, being acquired by audit firms really well and also lays out the possibility that some of these acquisitions could have positive effects for audit quality and others might have not so positive effects for audit quality. I wondered if, to kind of get to the meat of your paper, if you could maybe introduce the study that you did, some of the research questions that you set out to answer, and how you designed the study. What kinds of proxies did you use for it? Yeah, so this is Matt again. So specifically, I mean, if we think about the big research question, we wanted to examine whether audit firm growth by uh, consulting firm acquisition, whether that's associated with audit quality. We are focusing on the impact at the audit office level. And the reason for that is because the consulting firms are merged into the local audit office. So in other words, if, if there's a, a consulting firm that's based in uh, whatever city in, in Tampa, Florida, then the big four is not going to generally allow that. It's not generally going to lease two different spaces, right? They're going to merge that Tampa, Florida consulting firm office into the local office. 
And so these acquisitions can act as a shock to that local office, essentially, uh, specifically a shock from a culture perspective as well as from an expertise perspective. And so that's kind of why we chose this setting. And then we're separately going to analyze or identify the acquisitions as either being related to the audit practice or unrelated to the audit practice. And so we call the ones that are related to the audit practice, we call them ERP acquisitions, just because a lot of the acquisitions relate to enterprise resource planning systems. And those are big systems that companies use to manage their supply chains, uh, record Um, accounting entries, produce financial statements. So these are things like SAP and Oracle financials and things like that. And then we also, within these ERP acquisitions, we also identify data analytics type uh, acquisitions. So we basically are saying these things are very much related to the audit. This type of knowledge would help the audit. So those are the, the audit related acquisitions. And then we have the ones that are unrelated. And those are all sorts of things. And they're acquisitions related to strategy or proxy advising or things like that. And so uh, we tackle the research question from two different um, methodologies. And so one of them is this qualitative methodology, which I'll let Eldar talk about in a minute. And then the other is this archival methodology. So from archival, we're going out and we're gathering publicly available data and then you know running regressions and looking at correlations and trying to make some inferences from that. So from a research design perspective on the archival side, What we can do here is we can take advantage of the staggered nature of the acquisitions. And essentially that lets us do what's called a generalized difference in differences design. So the basic idea is this, is that when we look at all the acquisitions, they happen at different times and at different places all across the country. And so by doing that, whenever we ultimately look at the correlations that we find, for an alternative explanation to exist, it would have to essentially line up with all the different acquisitions in time and place. So it helps us to make stronger inferences on the archival side. And so specifically, we looked for acquisitions between 2005 and 2015, and then we're going to match the acquisition headquarters location to the nearest auditor office. And then from a proxy perspective for audit quality, our primary proxy is restatements. And so specifically, we looked at whether a given company year is misstated. So are the financial statements misstated when they're released? And so that would be revealed through a subsequent restatement. And so that's our primary proxy. It provides, well, it's very strong evidence that there was a material misstatement for a given year. We also use some other proxies that are kind of traditional audit quality proxies related to like accruals. We don't really find much there and those are very noisy. And so our primary emphasis are based on the misstatements. So Eldar, do you want to talk briefly about maybe the qualitative methodology? Yes. Thanks, Matt. So, you know, Matt just described the archival part of our study. And so the big picture is archival approach helped us identify whether there is a relationship between the acquisitions of these consultant practices and audit quality. You know, the strength of our archival approach is that it can analyze the, these massive amounts of data and identify using these proxies whether there is a relationship. And so then we thought to add some meat to these bones, that I shouldn't minimize the contribution of the archival insights here, but the meat to the bones, meaning the, the context and the deeper insights into the mechanisms that drive these relationships that archival approach found. 
And so that's why we thought it would be helpful to also interview partners who did have experiences with acquisitions in some capacity, whether as leaders or they participated in them on the ground in the offices. Uh, and so we ended up interviewing 17 audit partners. We ended up identifying these partners, both retired and current partners. About half of them were in leadership positions, either previously before retirement or currently. And of course, all of the interviews that we had with them were confidential, and we felt that they were pretty open with us, partly because of these assurances and partly because they are they don't really have much to hide here. They, they believe they're doing the right thing, and they want to understand also how all this impacts audit quality. And so we interviewed them, Y17. The qualitative approach that we used is called a structured interview approach, meaning a semi-structured interview approach, meaning that there is some structure to these interviews. We have certain questions that we start with and we keep asking them to partners, but we are also open to new things coming out. And if anything comes out from these interviews that provides insights into the questions of interest to us, then we adjust our questions and we adjust them in subsequent interviews as well until we finally settle on a set of questions. And we stop interviewing people when we don't feel that incremental insights come up anymore. And so 17 felt like, you know, we've, we've interviewed a couple of partners before that, and we're pretty much starting to get the same things that we've heard before. So you had the two pieces of this study, the archival empirical side and the qualitative interviews. I wonder if you can maybe discuss a little bit about what you found. Does M&A activity by audit firms improve or does it harm audit quality? And how should we be thinking about those findings in terms of the technical, the professionalism, or the policy areas? Yeah, so this is Matt. On the archival side, what we found was that after there was a non-audit related acquisition, we actually found that there was a higher likelihood of misstatement. And so this held for kind of uh, severe type restatements as well as, as non-severe. And then on the audit-related acquisition side, we actually found that there was a lower likelihood of restatement or, or of having a misstated year. And that was specifically driven by some of the more severe types of misstatements. And then we also looked a little bit about kind of the, at the timing. And so the timing of the effect, uh, it was a little surprising to us, but on the, on the negative side, it was actually present very soon, like in, the, in T plus one in the next year. So essentially, uh, when I mean a, a negative effect, the negative effect of the non-audit related acquisition. So what we found then is that when there was this non-audit related acquisition, it seemed like the likelihood of misstatement increased almost immediately, uh, suggesting that you know, the cultural effects at the office uh, happened fairly quickly, which were a little surprising to us. Uh, although there is some literature that would suggest that culture can change relatively quickly. On the audit-related side, it seems like the lower likelihood of having a misstatement didn't really come to the surface until starting in about year three after the acquisition. And so this would suggest that this kind of knowledge or expertise effect would take a little bit of time to actually matter. So those are really kind of the main findings on kind of the archival side. Uh, maybe Eldar can talk a little bit about the qualitative side from the interviews. So on the qualitative side, we essentially asked three questions. So the, and we did that to, number one, understand the mechanisms a little better underneath the findings that Matt just described 
understand what's driving it. And number two, add some context so we can understand why is this happening and in what circumstances it's happening and so forth. So the first question we asked was why and how do big four firms acquire consulting practices? And, and what we consistently kept hearing is that partners do believe that they do it to gain expertise. So Matt mentioned that you know there are non-audit-related acquisitions and audit-related, but partners specifically believe and focus on expertise acquisition. So they view it as an acquisition of expertise. And uh, number two, of course, is to increase revenue. And then we ask them, so how do these acquisitions affect office audit expertise and subsequently audit quality, if it does? And, and what we heard is partners were very um, passionate and confident about this, that it does provide them networks from particularly in the office that they are in because, hey, you know, they can just walk down the, the hall and talk to somebody from whom they just met at the firm function the other day and ask them about application controls, analyzing data, cybersecurity, and so forth. Then maybe that leads to some further collaboration. Maybe they even ask out that expert or their team to their audit team. And as a result, they end up with better audit quality. And Matt mentioned that in archival results, we found that these effects of expertise seem to take a little longer than the effects of culture. And one of the reasons, uh, and this was granted after the fact that as we were doing these interviews, we started gaining some sense for it. It might take just longer for people to establish these relationships, to get comfortable with each other, to learn about what expertise is available, what these people are willing to do. So it might take time. On the third question that we asked related to audit culture, how do acquisitions affect office audit culture and subsequently audit quality if there are such effects? And this is where things got interesting. And I have to explain, we keep talking about culture, but it's a very elusive concept. And so the way we define that based on the prior literature essentially is a set of shared behavioral norms that define organizations and influence their practices. So it's a very broad definition, a set of shared behavioral norms. And there are various factors that affect it. And what partners told us is one of the things that happens when acquisition is made, it's a huge distraction to everybody. And first and foremost, leaders of the office. You know, if you have a question, you need some resource, you need advice, you need some involvement of top leaders, they can be helpful to you as an audit practitioner. But if they are now distracted by trying to integrate this huge consulting practice that they just acquired, takes away their attention from you, from perhaps your needs, and it starts to shift your mindset. Hey, you know, maybe this is not as important as I thought. Maybe this is okay. That mindset now shifts away from professionalism, focusing any cost we need to increase audit quality to commercialism. Hey, we, we have to help out these people that we just brought into our office. We have to ensure that they are prospering in our office. We just spend a lot of money. So it's culture of commercialism is starting to set in. And so that, that's what happened. And that, that could happen pretty quickly. These, these distractions, the shift in attention, partners are asked uh, to help integrate this new acquisition that was just made, the new principles, partners of the uh, consulting firm. And that potentially is what affects audit quality. What closing takeaways or thoughts might you offer to our listeners about this conversation or the paper? And are there any kind of open areas of research or open questions that you're still thinking about? Yeah, so, I mean, I would say that overall, you know, our evidence suggests that the acquisition activity of the big four 
could have positive and negative effects on audit quality. And I think sometimes that's hard to, I think people, you know, want to have like a definitive answer, but I think this really does suggest that it kind of depends and that, you know, this kind of speaks to the challenges of running an audit firm and specifically kind of the challenges of our capital market. And ultimately kind of absolutist views uh, that revenue growth uh, through kind of this consulting activity is either good or bad for audit quality appears to be kind of simplistic. And, you know, as we look out to the world, we see a lot of different jurisdictions handling uh, these types of issues with audit firms in lots of different ways. So just as an example, I think it was last month that there was a UK regulator, the regulator that has authority over the audit firms. They told the audit firms that they need to separate their audit practices from the rest of their firms by 2024. So the idea is that, you know, that audit practice needs to be kind of insulated, needs to have its own P&L. Those audit partners need to spend the majority time on, you know, their audit clients and there shouldn't be any kind of subsidizing across practices. And so that's how the UK is handling it. And so, you know, our paper can't really speak to what's the best way to handle these types of things. Like, uh, the unique thing about the paper is that we actually, I think, are one of the first to find kind of a negative, a possible negative effect from uh, non-audit services. And then we find, you know, a, a potential positive effect as well, which is not something that is very common in the literature either. Uh, so I think... Overall, our paper just provides kind of more fodder to think about and some evidence around the different channels that, you know, regulars have been thinking about related to how non-audit services could affect audit quality. This is Eldar to add to Matt's point. There are some sort of takeaways that we do hope that uh, practitioners, academics, and uh, other interested parties think about. I mentioned at the beginning that Right before the whole Anderson-Enron debacle, firms increased their revenue percentage from non-audit services to about 50% from low teens in the 80s. Today, we are back to way over 50%. In fact, if you compare non-audit services to the overall revenue of these, what we still call audit firms, it's now about two-thirds two-thirds are non-audit services across the big four. And then you need to ask yourself, are these audit firms anymore? They are now professional services firms that also provide audit services. And what we found, as mentioned, is there, there is potential expertise spillover, and that is why these non-audit services could be good for auditing. But now we, you know, the world is a change in place. So right now we are in pandemic. We don't know when things will get back to normal, but some of these mechanisms that we described and learned from the partners were before the pandemic. And this is, you know, we heard statements such as, it's a lot easier for me to walk down the hall. Well, guess what? You can't walk down the hall anymore. At least it's not a normal occurrence anymore. So these effects potentially of the expertise spillover could be weakened. So then you have to ask yourself, what are then the effects of uh, consultant practice acquisitions could be? One thing we definitely don't know and couldn't identify is how non-audit-related consulting practices could help audits. There's not even an intuitive theoretical mechanism that we could identify how they could help. In fact, we found in our paper that they potentially hurt audit quality. And as Matt mentioned, whether that is, you know, we can't really hang our head on. We have some evidence. More research would be helpful as with any research finding but what we do feel very confident about, there's definitely no way that it could help 
audit quality. So that is what I think the firms need to think about and focus on the fact that for the practices that they acquired that are related to audit, they need to make sure that, especially in these changing environments, they provide mechanisms for audit practitioners to take advantage of that expertise that becomes available so they could take advantage of the positive effects of these acquisitions. We also suggest that future research examines things like partner incentive structure and how does acquisition of consultant practices affect their incentive structure. Anecdotally, partners seem to think that consulting revenue helps them. But again, anecdotally, because some of our partners talked about it who were in high leadership positions, that this is not the case. In fact, they believe that audit practice subsidizes consultants in bad years, but in good years, guess what? Consultants want to get paid more or they just leave. And so as a result, the profit part, even though the revenue part may be huge, the profitability part that all partners have to share may not actually be helping partners. So these are interesting questions for future research. And we hope that our paper helps academics, practitioners, and whoever else might be a stakeholder in this interesting area. Our guests today have been Eldar Maximoff, Assistant Professor of Accountancy at Arizona State University, and Matthew Eakey, Assistant Professor of Accounting at Texas A&M University. We've discussed their paper, The Revival of Large Consulting Practices at the Big Four and Audit Quality, which they co-authored with Dane Donaldson at the University of Iowa and Andy Emdick of the University of Notre Dame. I'll add a link to the paper in the show notes for today's episode. Eldar, Matt, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.